Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream. Everybody's gonna eat, we're going mainstream. All my family is singing. See you on mainstream, we're going mainstream. Wall Street to Melrose Avenue. We're going mainstream. Venture capitalists to athletes to creators. Today, we have a special guest who is one of the foremost leaders in the alternatives industry. Bill Kelly is the CEO of Kaya, the leading global education and professional credentialing body dedicated to delivering greater knowledge and alignment for investors in the alternative investment space. Bill brings an operator's perspective to Kaya. Prior to joining Kaya in 2014, Bill was the CEO of Boston Partners and one of the seven founding partners of the predecessor firm, Boston Partners Asset Management, which was sold to a $215 billion global asset manager, Robico, in 2002. Bill then led Robico's US operations as CEO. Bill's illustrious career in institutional asset management spans over 30 years, where he's been in CEO, COO, and CFO roles across a number of firms. He's also currently the chairman and lead independent director for Boston Partners Trust Company, which has over $2 billion in assets. Bill has been an independent board member at Salient Partners, a $16 billion investment advisory firm, and an independent trustee at Bank of America's $50 billion mutual fund complex business. He's also on the advisory board of the Certified Investment Fund Director Institute, which strives to bring the highest levels of professionalism and governance to independent fund directors around the world. Bill is a tireless advocate for shareholder protection and investor education, which led him to his current role at Kaya, where he's helped grow the membership to over 11,000 members and 31 chapters across 95 countries. Kaya serves a critical role in the alternative investments industry. They educate industry stakeholders and fiduciaries on the most current knowledge and best practices across the evolving landscape of alts. They have a sophisticated credentialing and thought leadership program that equips everyone from fund managers to distributors of alternative investment products to individuals who want to learn about alts with all the tools they need to understand the industry as Kaya looks to consistently raise the standards across the space. Bill and I had a fascinating conversation. His thoughtful and eloquent views on the evolution of the alternative space led us to talk about how the retirement promise has impacted consumers and investors and what it means for alternative investments, the importance of being a fiduciary, how Kaya consistently evolves their education program to cover emerging trends like crypto and DeFi, how partnerships with leading investment platforms in the alt space like iCapital help to move the industry forward. Thanks, Bill, for sharing such important and interesting thoughts on the alt space and for providing critical education to the space through Kaya. I hope you all enjoy. We're going mainstream. Bill, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. How's everything going? Uh, outstanding. Uh, and spending time with one of my 12,000 global members is great. We just met recently, and I appreciate the outreach and looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, you know, well, I think education is such an important piece of any kind of sort of in part of the investment industry, but particularly with alternative investments. And that's what you're doing now at Kaya. That's what you've done kind of across your career. Um, and you've had a number of different career experiences in investment management uh, and the alt space that have led you to Kaya. So we'd love to kind of just hear about your background and, and how you ended up at Kaya at this point. Uh, sure. Uh, so I'll try to avoid, uh, you know, every twist and turn. I get out of college uh, almost 40 years ago, which is uh, so hard for me to both say and believe that at the same time. But uh, but if I maybe quickly touch on Kaya, go, go backwards and go forwards again, I, I think it, coming to Kaya was destiny. Uh, credentialing was uh, in my blood before I knew it. I get out of college and got my CPA, worked for Pricewaterhouse. And, uh, and what I say to uh, young folks now is that wh when I got my CPA, I had the, the work like hell to get it. And when I got it, I don't even know if anybody said thank you. I didn't get a raise. I didn't get a day off. I got more work to do. And, and I think it's an important uh, lesson I learned early on, which is a credential, Kaya, CFA, the CPA. It's part of the mosaic of what defines you and, and defines you over longer periods of time. And I think it fits very nicely into the mosaic of being a professional. So 
starting out in public accounting, I loved it because it showed me how a business worked and how it operated, but I had no interest in making that a career. But the skills I learned about how to read a balance sheet, how to read an income statement, how to understand a business helped me tremendously throughout the rest of my career. And I spent a little bit of time in financial services tangentially with Bear Stearns uh, doing some mortgage underwriting. And God knows where that led over time to the GFC. I was probably early in and early out. But I came up to Boston uh, in 1988 and really then get into financial services wholesomely in asset management. And I came up on the business side of asset management. You could come up is in the investment side, the distribution side, or the business side. And I grew up in the business side at a time where the asset management industry was just forming and the roles of a CFO and a COO and a chief risk officer and a chief compliance officer largely didn't exist when I get into this space. So it was a little bit of a, an open opportunity and, uh, and my career progressed uh, through that. And, uh, and we ended up starting a firm called Boston Partners in, uh, in 1995, sold that to Rubico in Rotterdam uh, 2002. I became the CEO of the U.S. operation. And they were very good partners. But uh, for many reasons, I was looking to be an entrepreneur and left uh, probably just about a, a 10, 11 years ago, did some independent board work. And I think as, as you got to know me a little bit, Michael, I'm not really wired to be in a board seat and being relevant uh, once a quarter. Uh, although I love that work and I still do some today, I was looking for a balanced outlet where I could be an operator again. And when Kaya came calling through Corn Ferry uh, just about seven years ago, uh, it fit right into my wheelhouse and the rest is history. So tell us a little bit about Kaya and what the mission of the organization is. So it's evolved uh, quite a bit, uh, and it has to, because the moment we become an interesting textbook with no relevancy to people like you in the industry, we're dead on arrival. So uh, we've had to develop the curriculum because the, the pace of change is, is very, very rapid in the investment world. Uh, it started as a, a really a, uh, a joint venture for all intents and purposes with the AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association out of London, and the Eisenberg Business School at UMass Amherst. And uh, the thought was that the CFA was out there as a credentialing-based body focused really on the analyst and really on the 60-40 space. So we're going to get into some of this today. But as the endowment model was coming into its four, it's now 51, 52 years old, but many institutions were adopting that model. So getting involved in some of the tradable strategies, hedge funds and CTAs, but then private equity, private debt, venture, real estate, et cetera, uh, there was no professional credential covering that. So Kaya began this uh, just about 20 years ago. And when I joined uh, at the beginning of 2014, they were at a phase where very much focused on members like you, but really trying to take the velocity of our message upstream and get it into the hearts and minds of not just the allocators, but the big asset managers, the regulators around the world, the media was still uh, probably a great untold story in many parts of the world. And that's what I'm hoping to uh, maybe to uh, push back on a little bit uh, today. And, and we have a lot of work to do. So when I, I travel the globe and I have not done anything in terms of airplanes uh, in these last 12 months, it really is uh, feeling and touching our members, but through the big uh, megaphones of some of these big platforms I just mentioned a moment ago, and underscoring the need for education at a time where these markets have gotten much more complex and private equity is an example. Once an asset class, now a very, very complex industry and has to be approached by a, a fine-tuned professional. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are so many things to tug on in there and we'll, we'll get to things like how the 60-40 portfolio has evolved. And then not, not only is the need for alts in a portfolio important, but then the need for understanding of alts important for both the buy side and the sell side. But before we get to that, I mean, you've had such a fascinating career and you've worked on the investment management side. You've built an asset manager. What were some of the lessons learned from those career experiences that has either led you to Kaya or you've taken with you now that you're at Kaya kind of sitting in those different seats? Well, I, I think that one of the uh, the benefits I've had, and I think this is true of anybody that's been successful, is uh, having a strong mentor, somebody that you could emulate. And it doesn't mean they did everything right, uh, but some, somebody you can learn from. And uh, one of my most important ones was a very good friend of mine, Desi Heathwood, who was celebrating his 80th birthday this summer. And he taught me early on to always think about 
what would the client think? Every decision, what would the client think? And and even today, we're wrestling with the definition of a fiduciary duty. Uh, it was on his uh, conscience all the time, and he ingrained that on me and everybody he works for. And uh, and that's gotten more and more complicated as this business has grown. And uh, uh, Jack Bogle talked about this uh, agency problem where you've got the bottom line as an asset manager and a client to respect at the same time. So you're wearing two different hats. But if you can begin and end your day with that mantra, what does it mean for the end client? That's very important. And maybe uh, uh, a, a transition from uh, asset management to the educational side, having grown up really on the traditional, the 60-40 side of, of the business, and we were a value equity shop at Boston Partners. But when we sold to Rubico, they had some private equity business. They bought a firm called Weiss Peck and Greer in New York that was doing a little bit of venture. Their first venture investment, believe it or not, was FedEx. Uh, Phil Greer, who I think is still alive, might be on the uh, the compensation committee and the board of FedEx. Uh, and they single strategy hedge funds. But I was on the board of uh, a manager that started some liquid oil product. And I'm saying, wow, this is pretty cool. We're democratizing investments that the average investor didn't have access to. But I'm talking to the distribution folks and saying, how is the end client that understand what's going on inside of this box? And, we're, and if we're taking very complex strategies that in, in, in history have been very opaque, uh, they've had no limits on, on liquidity. You could have leverage employed. And we're going to jam all of this into a 40-act box with uh, next-day liquidity. I don't think this is going to end so well. So I think that every twist and turn of my career, I've always focused on the end investor. And now at Kaya, our mission is first and foremost, we want to serve our, our members well. But but thinking about that through the lens of the end investor at a time where the retirement promise and uh, longevity risk and investment risk has been put squarely on their shoulders without a lot of training. I think you're hitting on something really interesting, which is one that there should potentially be alternatives in investors' portfolios. That could be institutional investors. The Yale endowments of the world are very active investors in alts, and they benefit from that in part because of the quality access that they have to the sequoias, the benchmarks, et cetera, in the venture world or into top-tier private equity funds. Not everybody has that access, but also for the individual investor and that there's a case for them to have alts in their portfolio. But then the other side of what you're saying is that Either those who are in fiduciary seats, who are selling those investment products to the end investor, individual or institution, or the end investor themselves, the individual or the institutional investor, they need to understand what they're investing in. How do you think about the push and pull of those two things? Because one, on one hand, yes, alts probably serve a place in people's portfolio. But on the other hand, it's not the easiest thing to understand various strategies, the various ways in which people can invest in alts. And I think this gets to the individual investor at the end too, right? Like there's structural issues and regulatory issues where, whereby certain investors can't access certain investments in the way that an institution would. So how do you think about balancing those, those two sides of the coin? Uh, so I, I, there's a, a lot there, and maybe I'll start with the overarching theme about the retirement promise. And uh, in the mid-1970s, when I was uh, uh, primarily working my way through college, the vast majority of workers had a defined benefit plan. So you stayed at the company for a long enough period of time, and you got your gold watch, and, and more importantly than the watch, you got an annuity from the age of 60 to the day you die, and the employer took care of the investment and longevity risk. Uh, circa 1978, and this part of the story is not well to told. If you Google the quote unquote father, and, and back then and maybe today it often is the father as opposed to the mother or the man versus the woman, we've got to work on that too. But but Ted Banner is create, uh, given uh, maybe uh, credit, not maybe is given credit for the birth of the 401k plan. He'll be the first to tell you, and he's very vocal about this, that he just found an obscure piece of tax code called 401k. And ironically, the 401k was created by a House representative whose constituency was upstate New York, including Eastman, Kodak, and Xerox. And he created this as a loophole for stock warrants for the fat cats of these big corporations. 
So talk about unintended consequences. This little <laughs> loophole has turned the entire retirement promise upside down. And I don't want to wander too off, too far off of, of your question, but just think about all of this monetary intervention we've had and these trillions of dollars that have been put in and, and historically low rates for, for long or forever. What that means 10, 20 years from now, I'm not so sure. So, so back to the here and now. Uh, as this shift of responsibility went onto the shoulders of the individual and more on the corporate side, the ultimate person at the end has not really changed. And this shows a lot of the misunderstanding as to who the players are. And I'll give you an example. When Elizabeth Warren, who's one of my, my senators in Commonwealth of Massachusetts, when she was running for president, she drafted a legislation, a piece of legislation called Stop the Wall Street Looting Act. Uh, she could have been right. I don't know too much about it, but the name just implies a complete misunderstanding as to how things work. First off, private equity is the furthest thing from Wall Street. Wall Street is public equity. Private equity probably couldn't find Wall Street on a map and has nowhere, uh, no interest in going anywhere near it. <laughs> but then if you look at the institution who's the LP working side by side with the VC funds, the private equity funds, the real estate funds, it's the CalPERS, the CalSTRS, uh, the LA Fire and Police. So at the very end of that pipe, the beneficiary is a policeman. It's a fireman. It's a sanitation worker, a public health worker. So, uh, But what we've done now, other than the public fund space, is we've given the complexity of this responsibility, investment longevity risk. And up until recently, we've said, well, when you were part of the defined benefit scheme, you had access to this buffet of investment options from traditional to alts and everything else in between. Now, as an individual, we're giving you all this responsibility and you can only play over here. Public equities and public fixed income. Public equities are beyond fairly valued and fixed income, uh, nominal or real, is a horrible, horrible place to be for the foreseeable future if you're looking to compound at any uh, at any rate. So. I feel because of these uh, these uh, uh, changes we've had over the last 30, 40 years and how they progressed, we cannot put this genie back in this bottle. So now we, we're, we're long uh, 401k plan, and we've got to figure out how to give these investors greater access and greater options. But to your point, Michael, it is very, very hard because sitting between them and those investment options is a wall of obscurity and how we can give them access, and how they can work with an intermediary, how we can raise the bar at financial literacy. These are very, very tough things to do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's exactly where I want to go with this, because it's, you know, th that's such an important piece of this, right, is the, we cannot bring this back in the bottle, right? People want and demand access to all sorts of investments. They can no longer necessarily return um, what they would like in public markets. And, and with rates low, they want to look for higher yielding assets. So they're going to alts. That could be more traditional alts like private equity funds or hedge funds or startups uh, or less traditional alts, alt-alts like collectibles, crypto assets, things things of that nature, which you've, you've covered to some extent as well at Kaya. Where does the role of Kaya come in in terms of educating the individual in all of this? Like, And and maybe as you think about that, also the intermediary too. And, and that kind of gets into the, the question of like, should individuals be the one effectively stock picking or investing in these assets themselves? Or should this really be done through intermediaries, wealth managers and advisors, which again, not everybody, you know, has. So th that's where the nuances of all of this come into play. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, I think that every business uh, out there is going to be subject to some form of disruption and the credentialing business is not going to be the exception to the rule. Nobody is. So we have to look at some of these trends we've discussed so far and we can't sit back and say, wow, that's kind of interesting. I hope somebody sorts it out. We've got to figure out what is our role today and what's our role going to be tomorrow and next month and five years from now. And uh, the future is unknowable. But I can guarantee you it's going to be very different five years from now than it was five years ago today. So we're we're constantly thinking about relevancy. And you look, and you know the curriculum well, Michael, that uh, the, the two levels of Kai is a heavy, heavy hammer. And if I've got a less sophisticated individual who's inherited uh, money from uh, the baby boomer parent, uh, or they have their own 401k plan, and they're working with an advisor that may not be as sophisticated as the quant team at, at BlackRock, 
uh, we've got to find a way of having a fit there where we could figure out what is the educational solution because we are we're a non for profit, but our mission and our goal is to bring education and transparency because this democratization parade is going to continue and it's going to accelerate, and we've got to find ways of working on that. So we try to do it first and foremost through content. We have something called the Fundamentals of Alternative Investments, which was meant to be an answer to the advent of liquid alts. Uh, but uh, but we, we're trying to find partnership here. And what's interesting, too, is uh, having come from uh, asset management, I think in my role is so helpful because I'm a capitalist at heart who believes in the end investor. And I think I'm a little bit unique in uh, in this association space because the associations, there's no such thing as a hostile takeover. Uh, you, you can't uh, hire an activist to go and rattle somebody else's cage and everything has to be done kind of nice, nice and boards have to vote on it. And, and if I have a need, I can't go and hire a search of do a lift out at the CFA. It just doesn't work that way. So, so I think that we've got to work on partnership and I'm fortunate that I have found a few like-minded uh, believers and we're constantly looking ahead and it's uh, and we, well, I think we, Kaya, more so than most, really have a strategic view toward where we need to be going, which is to answer a very different value proposition in the future. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on something which is a trend that doesn't seem to be changing. And and maybe maybe this is an unfair question to ask, given given your, your current role as an educator. But do you think for the end individual investor, particularly if they're investing in a self-directed manner, should there be a threshold level of knowledge that they are required to go through or achieve in order to be able to invest into alternatives writ large? It's a hard uh, thing to take on because uh, I've got five kids and uh, four of them are more or less out of the house. But my daughter, Abby, is uh, out of college now three years. Uh, Smart, street smart kid. She works for Salesforce. And I think they have 54,000 employees. And I would like to think genetically or otherwise, Abby's maybe a little bit more up on the curve than her fellow workers, but, but how does an organization like Salesforce decide which one of those 54,000 should or should not be in their 401k plan? Uh, they really can't uh, because they've abdicated the responsibilities of their retirement promise to the masses. So I think everybody's got to come into that pool. I don't think there's any way of gating that. But we've got to find a way of, of maybe bringing corporate America and, and maybe a, some concept of a plan sponsor back into the mix because some advice has to be there. But uh, but to think that uh, we can put some kind of gate up or or maybe qualify some people and, and others know. And this is what the SEC has recently tried to do with the accredited investor standard, where they left the uh, the index to inflation alone, so effectively have created more people because of what was $100,000 15 or maybe 40 years ago is, is different than today, whatever the thresholds are. And then they've allowed uh, these various series license holders. And we've actually talked to the SEC directly about what about a CAIA, what about a CFA? And that's a harder thing for them uh, to gate because the, you could check a box, FINRA license, no FINRA license. But, mm-hmm. but having qualified advisors on your team, there's something there. I think if there's going to be uh, a minimum expectation or a minimum uh, rule put in place, I think it's got to be about some level of, of education and credentialing. And I think there, Kaya certainly has a role to play. Well, And you're, you're kind of hitting on something else, which is interesting too. Like your daughter at Salesforce or the countless employees who work there may understand SaaS businesses better than many other people understand SaaS businesses. So like if, if they come across an opportunity to invest in a startup that does enterprise SaaS, maybe even works with Salesforce, they may know better than many others. And if they have the opportunity to invest in that, but they're not an accredited investor, that, 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 that I think becomes kind of really interesting questions around what do people know about certain businesses, whether alternative investment, and maybe there's a way to kind of append some sort of alt education of that, just so people understand like the spectrum of different investments in the alt space. I think that's, that's one of the interesting aspects too here. And, and, and would love your thoughts on this, which is a lot of people tend to have tended to think about alts as a very separate universe from the public markets. But in reality, on the, you know, on the intermediary side, somebody's selling financial products into private equity funds or hedge funds, um, or a wealth advisor, they're really kind of 
like they're thinking about the entire portfolio and you're really any investment product is competing against any other investment product that could fit in somebody's kind of entire pie of assets or wallet share right so maybe they shouldn't be as as separate as people think they are well if we could do nothing but teach people one thing uh, i think if we could teach them the concept of long-termism because over the long term uh, these little blips mean nothing. And if you go back and look at the at the uh, the drawdowns of these bear markets, it is very, very painful. But then if you look at the duration of those bear markets versus the subsequent bull markets, there's no contest. So uh, if we can ride out these blips, I think that would help tremendously. And and to your point a second ago, Michael, about uh, you know being a SaaS expert at, at uh, Salesforce or some other place, you're absolutely right. And we did, uh, we just got off this Alt LA event, and we do this live every year out in Los Angeles. This is an awesome event. I, I love this event. Uh, I, I think this is our sixth annual. I was out in Los Angeles three or four years ago, uh, and I interviewed Howard Marks as one of the keynote speakers. So we get high quality speakers at this event. So we did it remote. My colleague, uh, John Bowman, uh, did a panel closing the session out just, I think it was yesterday or Wednesday. Or yesterday, yesterday was Wednesday, so I think it was yesterday, with uh, Tim Draper and Mark Yusko, and kind of talking in this theme. But I think it was Draper that said, the young person at 20 or 25 should be all in in VC, because that's money they're not going to touch for 40 years. So liquidity should not be a page one worry list for them. So just, uh, I, I assume he's espousing diversification to some degree, but, but I think that this long-term nature of investing and being an investor versus Day trading as a market participant are two very, very different undertakings. And I think CNBC and the average person in the street think they're one and the same, and they're definitely not. Well, you're getting to another really interesting point, too, which which kind of gets to the self-directed nature of alts versus either working with an advisor or having kind of somebody else manage those assets for the end investor. But to your point about illiquidity like that's where alts like it's it's okay to have illiquidity if that if that illiquidity doesn't need to be doesn't need to be taken um and if that can outperform li- li- more liquid assets right so how do you think about the interplay of like letting people not touch the investments that they're making versus touching them and trading them too, because I think what you're another trend you're seeing in the alt space in part because of the word liquidity, people are so, so keyed in on, on the idea of needing liquidity, getting liquidity, particularly at the individual retail investor level that you're even starting to see in the alt space with funds, platforms, late stage private companies, the idea of liquidity mechanisms so that people can get liquidity in more illiquid markets. Is that something that you think should be happening? Or do you think that it's it's better off kind of letting these things ride and run? Because even in public markets, people tend to do better when they don't touch those assets and are, and are longer term investors rather than trying to trade in and out in time markets, whether it's public or private markets. Yeah. So I, I, I think that if you look at the target date funds as an example, and I think the Department of Labor has shown a little bit of a, a movement in this direction last year where they're thinking about allowing more of these illiquid investments into target date funds. And I think if we're going to let the camel's nose into the tent, I think that is as good a place as any to do it. Because I think most investors, while they may day trade their personal account, the 401k is kind of on cruise control. So you have the the 401k there, you're not looking at it month to month, year to year, and and the long-term benefit is there. on, on your second point, Michael, uh, about this whole digital invasion, and this is a whole new chapter maybe of discovery, but uh, you look at this, uh, you know, these uh, non-fungible tokens and digitizing virtually everything out there. And I think what made private equity special versus public equity is uh, the fact that it was in the private sector. There was asymmetric information. It wasn't liquid. There was a complexity premium. And you lay every one of those things on top of public equity, and you're adding a couple hundred basis points of return each time around. So if I start pulling these layers off, taking the illiquidity premium off, taking the complexity premium off, removing the asymmetric information, I've got a public market proxy. 
So, and, and we've seen a convergence, certainly in terms of median returns, the correlation to the public markets are, are getting close to one. So I think in order to get the diversification, you've got to find that less trodden road or a very special GP or get into the less efficient markets. So, uh, so I, I think that uh, we've got to be careful about throwing liquidity at this versus throwing education at it. Well, what you're getting at is, and without potentially giving investment advice, what you're getting at, which is, is interesting, is kind of like investors may have to go further out on the frontier of alternatives now into some of these more inefficient uh, or nascent markets, whether it's emerging manager VCs, right? I think it was, it was Chris Saka who had one of the best returning funds in, in history. It was, a, it was an $8 million fund that he started with, but it returned right. something like 252 times, you know, t- times his money on that. But like he was able to do that because of the size of his fund, because of the companies he was able to get into. Um, and, and now, obviously, there's a whole crop of emerging managers. Like, that's an area, right, where people may not have had access before and now are trying to find ways to access that market or crypto assets uh, or even other sorts of alternative, alternative assets. Maybe, I mean, as things as crazy as trading cards, sports, uh, sports cards, uh, NFTs, et cetera. So, how do you think about kind of some of the more recent trends in the alt space and is what content that you are now putting on the platform at Kaya a reflection of different or increased demand from different types of investors who want to learn about the alt space? So I, I think it's reflective of a few of these trends we talked about, Michael, that a very different uh, uh, investor is coming into the fore. And I think also as some of these uh, more alternative assets become more mainstream, more commoditized, it's going to be hard to get a differentiated return there. And uh, and the home of alpha is found in a sea of inefficiency. So I think to, uh, to your first point, uh, just over the last uh, couple of weeks, virtually, I've been in the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I've been in sub-Saharan Africa. I've been in India. And you look at, the, first off, the need for capital in those markets and the amount of inefficiency in these markets. And, and Saudi is an interesting uh, example that uh, they're trying to rid their dependency on oil by 2030. And independent of oil, they are mineral rich. And uh, they're doing a lot in the fintech and the edtech space. And they've created these innovation hubs and they've got big sovereign wealth funds and they've backed them with big dollars. And a lot of the private equity and VCs are setting up local offices. And that's a market right now which is highly inefficient. And the early adopters there are going to do quite well. So if I'm thinking about opportunity here, it's not necessarily correlated to size, but I think about the inefficiencies of, of some of these smaller markets and, and it's a road less traveled. I think it's going to be much more interesting than the big buyout fund. So on that point, how do you then properly educate both the intermediaries and end investors on that? Because certainly if we, if we talk about the intermediary space for, for a bit, they, you know, they will never get fired for putting their clients in a Blackstone fund or a Carlisle fund, and nor should they. Those are those are very high quality managers. They're of institutional quality. They have a track record. It's audited. They have a number of institutional investors that have all vetted this. So there's there's very good reason for for those intermediaries to be doing that. Uh, however, as you mentioned, particularly in Big buyout private equity interquartile spreads are very thin between first and fourth quartile. That spread widens as you get to smaller fund managers, lower middle market private equity, emerging manager VC, and top tier VCs, right? So, like, yes, there are returns to be had in less efficient markets, but then how do you educate those intermediaries when the default and easy option so that they don't lose their end clients um, or, or, or get punished for maybe making a mistake once or twice because either because they did make a mistake or because just the market didn't go their way and that vintage of that fund just didn't do as well. But how, how, how do you think about educating those, those intermediaries as to why and how there may be a position in people's portfolios for some assets in kind of less efficient markets, even though it may be a little more risky. Yeah. So I I would like to say to you, Michael, uh, we've got this, meaning Kaya's got this. But the reality is that uh, we've got 12,000 members in a little over 100 countries, 6,000 people sitting for the exam, and a headcount globally of less than 50. 
And of those 50, there's probably only a dozen of us that are truly outward facing voices for Kaya. So we have to think about partnership all the time. So in some of these markets I mentioned a moment ago, like Saudi and India, we're partners with the local venture capital private equity associations, which is uh, helpful, uh, but still nascent to some degree. Maybe closer to home, uh, an organization you know quite well, iCapital and Lawrence Calcano, uh, they are sitting at a very interesting intersection because they've got the uh, independent uh, broker-dealers and wealth managers coming to them, and they want access to alts, and they, on the flip side, can take down uh, portions of liquidity in fund number X, uh, Y, or Z from uh, the friendly GP, and they could do the due diligence. And so they're playing a very interesting role. So we've gotten to know them. And Lawrence uh, Calcano, the CEO, I've gotten to know quite well. And he believes in education. Uh, he's a capitalist just like I am, but but f- puts that right out in front. So we've been talking to them about a solution, exactly as you say. And, uh, and they came to us and said, hey, what if we created a non-for-profit and worked with you folks in creating content? So we created something called Alt's Edge. That's really meant to be an educational tool for the advisor coming in. Maybe you can have me back on someday and see how it's how it went because we're just starting in this. But but I think it's an awesome undertaking. Uh, failure cannot be an option. Maybe we didn't get it right out of the box. I think we did a lot of good due diligence. We'll see how this goes. But education has got to find its way into this whole discussion. What are the types of things that you plan to educate the advisors on? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, maybe dispelling the myth that uh, these are asset classes, they are complex industries, and the importance of, of just the concept of due diligence. Because really, as you said before, the difference between the median and the top quartile, the top decile, is separated by thousands of basis points. So you have to have a very good uh, sense yourself or a very good partner around uh, access and investment due diligence, operational due diligence, and uh, and the concept of, of the risk management that goes along with that. And uh, and I think there, Kaya could bring a lot of practical tools to the table. And then with a firm like iCapital, who's worked with these advisors all the time, they're probably very, or probably they are, very open and honest about what their challenges and opportunities are. And it's almost a strategic type relationship where the soul is maybe bared a little bit to say, hey, I've got this millennial coming to me. And they want sustainability. They want ESG. uh, They want uh, cryptos. They want art in the portfolio. And they'd like NFTs. And I'm not even sure what NFT stands for. What do I do? (laughs) So I think that somebody's got to have an answer for them. And uh, and if it can't be iCapital, it can't be Kaya, uh, somebody's got to stand up and do it. So I think we're in an interesting position, but we can't take it for granted. We've got to continue to move forward every single day. So what are you mentioned? things like crypto and NFTs. And it sounds like you've been diving deep into that. I think Keith Black has has done a number of posts and and some segments on the crypto space and the DeFi space. That, that still is a rather foreign uh, topic to many advisors, although I think you, you actually had another Altco's mainstream guest uh, on uh, to work with Matt, Matt Hogan from Bitwise, and I think worked with him on a on a on a white paper uh, yeah. in the advisor space. But why why crypto and why now? Uh, so uh, Keith is a smart guy, uh, and it's it's good to be uh, having him as a business partner because he he's very curious and uh, and he worked in the Chicago trading pit, so he knows his space uh, and. So we don't cover it in the curriculum, but I, I, I the uh, loosely and maybe more loosely speaking, I think the origin of ideas in our curriculum start out by discussions, move to white papers, move to discussions in the 300 events we do around the year, moves to maybe our JI, the Journal of Alternative Investments. Then it comes into the core topics in our level two, and then maybe it embeds itself in the curriculum too. The benefit of those core topics is, you know, we can trade those white papers in and out. We have one in there currently on the blockchain technology, but nothing on, on cryptos. But if you look at where cryptos are going and uh, the major credit card companies, the major banks are all focused on this. And, and a very interesting conversation I had with Keith, with which is what uh, generated this paper. I just published it was his work. I published it on our What About Beta site under my profile on LinkedIn that uh, the uh, the futures exchanges have now allowed trading in Bitcoin and Ethereum. So mm-hmm. it's taken a couple of two very, very important things out of the mix. One is, who the hell is my counterparty? I tried to open up a Coinbase account four years ago, 
And first thing they asked me for was my MasterCard. And I'm saying, what, what do they need this for? And who's on the other side of that trade? And I didn't go through with it. But now if, you're, if you've got an intermediary as an exchange, you don't have to worry about counterparty risk nearly as much. And custody is not a concern either. And, and you could size your biggest drawdown risk is the premium you've, you've paid for the options. And I think it's going to allow investors to start to get in the mix. And we've seen now some ETFs and some 40 act funds have applied to the SEC to start trading in, in uh, these uh, uh, futures uh, as well. So I think this is we're going to see more of this where it goes. I don't know. And it's an area I will tell you, Michael, I don't understand. I, I don't own any myself, but I'm also not dismissive of it. And I, I saw Howard Marks on CNBC uh, last week, and uh, they were pushing him on a very negative statement he made a few years ago on cryptos. And, uh, and he just barked out, I've evolved. And I thought it was a great answer because Howard Marks is a little bit older than I am. But I think any one of us, doesn't matter if you're 25, 65 or 85, you're never too young or too old to evolve. And this the pace of change is happening. And if you're going to just dismiss crypto as a fad, given how it's grown and the acceptance of it, and then with these NFTs and this Beeple artwork sold this $69 million, uh, there's something going on there that we as professionals have to pay attention to. I'm not saying we should invest in it, but if you're going to reject it, reject it through the lens of education. Well, I think that actually hits on a really important point, which you referenced earlier in this in this segment about crypto, which is that, you know, understanding it in the context of how a traditional investor may look at a traditional investment and the life cycle of that investment or trade with things like market data or custody, things of that nature, right? And, and it's, it seems like it's more a matter of translating many of these things for the traditional investor so that they can understand these new markets, whether it's crypto or something else. And, and that kind of gets me to the next, you know, kind of the, the next frontier in the alt space. So you've obviously now spent time thinking about crypto, which I think based on what you've said, has has more or less gone mainstream if banks are offering crypto custody, banks are offering crypto products, there's now ETFs, et cetera. What, what in your mind has the potential to be the next big thing in the alternative asset space? What, what types of assets kind of are, are next in line that you may end up kind of profiling or covering within, within Kaya? So I think it could be virtually uh, anything and everything. And, and to think about the concept of any hard asset or any intangible not being digitized, uh, is, it's crazy. And, and I, I could definitely see, and with the overlay of what we talked about earlier, Michael, about the complexity and illiquidity premiums, but I could definitely envision uh, a dismantling of the private equity model that we once knew, where you would go in and... Uh, now it may be close to 20 times EBITDA. You'd buy a portfolio company, hold it for seven years and sell it to somebody else. Now you can go in and march up and down the asset side of that balance sheet and figure out what it is specifically you want to own. Or if you're an allocator, now I can be very, very specific about the risk I want to solve for. So I don't want to put private equity in my portfolio. I want to put this specific asset in my portfolio. Or I don't understand this company, but I understand this beautiful building they have in their balance sheet. So I, I think that uh, we're in the early innings of this digital invasion and uh, and this concept of, uh, of a store of value. I think that gets lost a little bit. And you, again, if you look at this uh, non-fungible token with, with, with people, uh, that's these, there's a fiat currency notation to that, that he created a syndicate for these some of these individual works of people and, and basically securitized them and sold it out to a syndicate and, and many, many individuals. I saw a, a young EY accountant bought some of these uh, early on. And I don't think, and I, I'd have to study this closer, I don't think there was a regulator anywhere near these transactions. So I think that we've we've lulled ourselves into a false sense of security, certainly in the U.S., that there's this big moat around our industry called regulation. And it's uh, and it's manned by the SEC and other, uh, uh, other organizations that are keeping a watchful eye on this. But we're seeing this dismantling happen in parts of Asia, and it's coming our way. And unless we have eyes wide open uh, in, a, in a heartbeat, uh, you could find your job, your organization disrupted literally overnight. It's going to be too late to do anything about it. Well, well this is bleeding right into 
kind of the rise of interest-based investing, whether it's people, whether it's investing in crypto assets, whether it's investing in NFTs, sports cards, et cetera. Like there's this rise of investors wanting to invest into things they're interested in, particularly younger investors. Those tend to be more speculative assets. How do you think about that in the context of both, you know, where that should fit in an investor's portfolio how do we deal with it in the context of, of regulation like you're talking about? And then, you know, how do they how do how do investors get educated on this? Because it's not the traditional, you know, education model of understanding the way you'd invest into a stock or a private equity fund uh, or a company, maybe. So how how do you think about grappling with all of those things as this rise in interest-based investing continues to happen? Well, I, I think we cut a number of ways. So uh so I, I mentioned my daughter Abby, and my, she's my number four. My youngest son Will is the only one left at home, and he's uh, he's 16. He's a sophomore in high school, and when this whole GameStop thing was going on, uh, he knew about it, and he doesn't read the Wall Street Journal, but it was out there. And uh, he's telling me a lot of his buddies at school have uh, Robinhood accounts, and I think most people would be horrified by that. But I'm saying, you know. These kids are probably uh, it's a private independent school. They're probably supervised by their parents. And uh, and and I think if they lose a little bit of money, they're going to learn something from that. So I think there's there's a literacy component to it that I like a lot. But what I do worry about is the 20, 30 and 40 year olds that are now uh, maybe home or got the stimulus checks and are now basically following the greater fool theory where they're piling in very late to some of these offerings and uh, and some of them have made money. Uh, but uh, but like a hot stove, the closer you get to it, you're eventually going to get burned. And uh, and to me, that's more gambling than investing. And and if they recognize that and they're playing with kind of house money, have at it. But if they're uh, uh, mortgaging up a home because they all of a sudden they think they're an investment professional, an investment expert, it's simply not going to end well. And uh, we're just coming off last week. And I think we talked about this uh, when we spoke uh, preparing for this, Michael, that last week, March 23rd, was the one-year anniversary of the COVID drawdown. Peak to trough or trough to peak, the S&P up 80%, the NASDAQ up 90 that that is just crazy. Everybody seems like a great investor now, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then they, they do believe they are. And that's part of the problem. Well, that gets to, I think, a really interesting point here because we may not be able to change investors' behavior, right? They may want access. They may want to be able to invest on Robinhood or on these investment platforms into any sort of asset. But then how does the skills required to be an investor in the alt space, how does that change at all? And and is there any way to, to your point, I, I totally agree with you, education has to play such an important role in all of this. But how do those two things happen so that you understand what skills are required and then how do you help people upskill to learn those things? Well, I think what people do with their after-tax money is, for the most part, I, I think their own business. I don't know what we can do about that. And and uh, and that should be theirs uh, to, to spend, not spend, save, gamble. And I don't think there's much society can do about that. But what I do worry about is the retirement promise and the fact that we, as I said, back in 1978, with eyes not even wide open, uh, we abdicated any kind of a, a, a institutional oversight. And we are where we are now, and we've got these baby boomers retiring. Uh, the concept of saving has been lost on most individuals to a large degree. And it's ironic that uh, I grew up, uh, I think, with a decent amount of investment acumen, as did my parents' generation, when somebody else was taking care of their retirement promise. And I think we've done worse from a literacy standpoint at a time when we had to do better because we've given these investors all of this responsibility. So it's interesting. I met, mentioned Ted Banner, the father of the 401k plan. Uh, I think he's still alive. Uh, he's been very vocal over the last couple of years and is out there on a regular basis talking about some of the benefits of the 401k, but some of the flaws as well. So it's not throwing the whole thing out but maybe dusting it off and saying, can we do things different and better? Because demographically, things are moving in the wrong direction as well. And we're putting a tremendous potential mortgage on the futures of our children and grandchildren. 
And it's very selfish to say, well, you know what? I'm not going to be here. I don't have to worry about that. We have a responsibility to worry about that. And, and we're probably not going to have time today to get into uh, ESG and more specifically climate. But I, I talked about the end investor a moment ago, Michael. And, uh, and if you look at that teacher, the, the firefighter, the public sanitation worker, they have not only the money they entrusted to you. They have families, they have neighbors, yep. they have kids, they have dreams, and they also have an interest in stewardship themselves and the planet Earth. So ultimately, we as investors are responsible for this, but we treat ESG as this sort of this thing out there that's kind of nice to have, but is secondary to returns and this double bottom line. It sounds good, but I don't think anybody ever preaches it. So, so I wanted off your pointed question a little no, bit. No, but, you're, you're uh, hitting on another really important point, which is there's not only democratization of access to investments, but there's now democratization of access to becoming an investor. And, and some of these things are very good things, right? Angel lists, rolling funds, the ability for people to spin up and create SPVs to then become venture investors and build their own track records in ways that they may never have been able to do otherwise. And that's how we talked about earlier, how people can end up building a track record and become that next Chris Soccer or, or, or whoever was great early investor, Manu Kumar from K9, right? Like all these investors who started their career off and and technology and, and access has enabled that to some extent. But you're also, I think, bringing up a really important point, which is back to the fiduciary piece, is that these investors now have a responsibility. So then the question becomes, how do you educate all of these investors that they have a responsibility in terms of what they're investing in, who their LPs are? If they're in, if if their venture funds, eventually their LPs may be a pension plan, it may be a retirement, um, you know, a retirement solution, and those are real people's. That, that's that's what we call real money, right? So how do you educate those investors that whether they're a smaller fund or a larger fund that that they're having people entrust them with their money, and then that's going back into those people's pockets. Uh, and and that's a really important thing. Yeah, I, I, and this may sound a little bit dreamy, but there's a, there's a certain grassroots aspect to this. So I'll, I'll give you the example, uh, and you'll be able to relate to this, as everybody will quite well with COVID. So uh, this started out in uh, in a relatively small city in China. Uh, nobody really paid attention to it. A lot of people looked at this old data and said, wow, it looks bad in China. Nobody really took a step back, including the, most of the smartest analysts in the world, to say, oh, my God, China controls all the supply chains. And they're the supplier of the non-China supply chains, and this is going to end badly. So we know that this picked up steam quite quickly, and then it got very bad in, in virtually every country around the world. And what did we do as individuals, as corporations, uh, as GPs and private equity funds? We turned to the sovereign and said, you've got to do something about this. You've got to give me triple P money. Uh, you've got to uh, uh, give me a bailout here. You've got to help me there. And, uh, and we're still doing that today. But as we learned a year into COVID, if we had done one thing individually, which is put a mask on and distance, uh, we'd be in a much, much better place today. So when you get these uh, insolvable, massive problems, and if any one of us is an individual saying, wow, I hope somebody fixes this, I think you got to start by saying, what can I do myself? And when it comes to climate, as an example, we sit back and say, wow, uh, somebody better get off their ass and fix this thing, because this, this sounds very, very bad. Uh, it's not going to work. The, and we put so much on the shoulders of the allocators, these big sovereign wealth funds around the world. And I saw something uh, recently that came out of a panel I did in Houston, Texas, where independent research showed the cost, just the infrastructure cost of going from fossil fuels to sustainable is $70 trillion. So think about the allocation mix to get 70 trillion just to fund the infrastructure to do this. It's enormous. So I think that we all have to take some level of personal responsibility in terms of, of what we own, the way we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. And, and if you're not feeling at least a modest amount of inconvenience every single day, you're not trying hard enough. But nobody wants to do that. But I think that that's really we've got to impress upon this has got to be sort of at the precinct individual level. Well, so that kind of gets to the question of, you know, how did those who are thinking about a career in alts get into this space and, and really 
think about and learn these things that you're talking about right here? So I, I uh, spoke to a bunch of young students uh, two weeks ago, uh, a Kaya member up there that does this. It's a great give back. That chapter uh, gets all of the local Montreal colleges uh, together. And I've done it live before and a couple hundred students in the room and unfortunately have to be virtual this year. And we talked about this very subject. And all of these young students want to get into the best investment banks out there, and that's the path toward private equity. And what I am trying to impress upon them is that uh, the more planning you do, there's something called life that gets in the way. And, uh, and the plan never works out as planned, full stop. And you could talk to anybody who's been around long enough, and they will tell you that. So I encourage them to not think about where they want to be in the first 18 hours, 18 days, 18 weeks. Where do you want to be sort of moving toward mid-career, 30, 35, 40 years old? And if you're smart and believe in yourself, uh, don't worry so much about how you start. And it was interesting that at the same Waltz LA conference I just mentioned a moment ago, on the first day, Monday, I was uh, interviewing uh, Dan Daniello, one of the co-founders of Carlisle. And I used Daniello as an example that he started out at Marriott and TWA and Pepsi and learned how big businesses worked and then took that skill set and brought it into Carlisle. And there's a lot of people at these big private equity shops that have accounting backgrounds. I should have done it myself. Maybe I would be uh, living on a beach somewhere. Uh, but accounting, law degrees, just understanding how commerce and business works and then just working very, very hard and you do need some luck in your career, and I've been the benefit of it, and you might have been too, Michael, but I think luck is highly correlated to a work ethic. Uh, and uh, and I think you've got to uh, not so much sweat those first couple of days, but I think there's great entry points. And if I think about uh, the emergence of fintech into the asset management space where data scientists are now being hired side by side with the analysts, and I look at this next generation coming in, and they're worrying about where they're going to be in the first couple of months. The 35-year-old doesn't know R, doesn't know Python, can't work with data sets. And this 20-year-old has studied all of that stuff as a core offering in college. So I think there was, there's going to be a bit of a shakeout here. And I think both the 20-year-old shouldn't sweat it so much the first 20 days. But the 35-year-old, if they're not learning and, and repotting themselves, they should be in a full body sweat because they run the risk of marginalizing their importance. Well, this is a topic for probably an entire podcast, but how the democratization of, of access through social media to information education is can help people learn about things, understand things, and and maybe learn new things, different industry, learn about the alt space. Uh, we've seen that happen in the venture world. T Twitter is, has become a place where a lot of people are able to learn about new things in the alt space for everything you can say about Twitter, like people are learning about venture. People are open sourcing a lot of that information. And my guess is you even see that in, in, in your perch at, at Kaya as well. And that probably is factored into how you think about your curriculum or what you're doing as well. And, and I think those are excellent points because I, I think there should be no, uh, uh, market uh, share when it comes to education. We should do everything we can to democratize that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think people talk about the negatives of Twitter and the app-based culture. And, and to show what a hipster I am, Michael, I'm on Clubhouse now. I haven't quite figured it out. <laughs> you got to get a, You got to get some Kaya interviews on Clubhouse. You should have your own, you should have your own club. I, I created one called What About Beta? And I've got maybe, I don't know, 30 followers. You haven't done anything yet, but, uh, but I'm, I'm learning. And I've done some of these uh, at the late hours, early mornings and there's always something on there that i find interesting so i'm figuring that out but but you've got free sharing of information from a lot of very very smart accomplished people and i would take advantage of that well it's great to see that that as an educational organization you're thinking about all of the different things that are happening and, and ways in which you can get your word out uh the final word though goes to what your favorite or most exciting investment is that you've made seen in the alt space? Well, yeah, I think that uh, maybe a, a precursor, and I'll, I'll get to the, uh, the question. Uh, when I think about risk in, in anything, in life and in investing, you really got to look at risk as an asset, uh, not a liability to be feared. And if you can figure out how to weaponize that at various points in your career, uh, it's very, very helpful. So my uh, most important investment happened at a time where a lot of different things collided, uh, life decisions, career decisions, investment decisions. And it was when we started Boston Partners in 1995. So I was 35 years old, uh, had accumulated virtually no wealth. And, 
And when we started, the goal was to buy this business from Mellon Bank. They didn't want to sell it. So seven of us started this in somebody's kitchen, Wellesley, Massachusetts. And we had Hellman and Friedman was going to back us. But but the moment it was a startup, that was not the business they played in. So we were shaking all the money out of our 401k plan. And I had three young boys under the age of five. My wife was taking her uh, oral boards for radiology down in Kentucky. And all three kids broke out on chicken pox. And if that wasn't enough stress, I said to Liz, we're doubling down on the home equity loan and I'm emptying the 401k plan out because I saw what we were going to build. And I think the asymmetric information between the operator and even the, uh, the GP are very, very different. And in some respects, we were better off not having the GP money because it was there. It would have just sucked a lot of uh, liquidity and value out of, uh, out of the out of picture. And it was an, one, the best far and away investment I've ever made, first and foremost, because it was an investment in myself in partners and friends that I trusted. And if we failed, and it certainly failure was on the table, uh, it would have been on us. But I think we just had such a powerful story, such a powerful vision, and uh, and it worked, uh, which is even nicer. So, uh, so it, it and it's allowed me a lot more flexibility at this stage of my career. No, what a cool way to capture the importance and relevance of building private companies and investing in private markets. And then also you, you like many other guests thus far have actually said the most important investment has been in themselves for their company. So that, that's, that, that's always a great sign. Yeah. Now there's a lot to be said for that. Invest in yourself, believe in yourself. When it comes to any decision, uh, if it doesn't pass the sniff test in your mind, you shouldn't do it. Well, that's a great way to end this, this all goes mainstream podcast. So thanks so much for coming on bill and sharing your wisdom. Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed it.